When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the review for AP Microeconomics and the midterm. So a couple of things, uh, the midterm consists of 40 multiple choice questions and it's going to cover units one through four. Um, there are 40 multiple choice questions and then two FRQs. Uh, it is going to be important to uh, have a scrap piece of paper or, or just not a scrap, but a piece of paper uh, in order to graph some on the FRQs, you might want to have a separate one as well to um, be able to, to, to do some of the, the graphing and stuff like that for the test, um, just because I personally think it helps, but that's just me. Um, anyways, uh, the review can be found on our page, so if you want to have a paper copy in front of you, yeah, you can, uh, but um, I'm going to go through and this is something that goes for really every AP course as far as a review goes. Um, I'm going to give you like the, the basics of the, the concepts that were are listed on the, um, on the document. But just remember, you know, no one is half the battle. You really got to be able to apply these things. So you'll get some, some questions that are lower level where it's just a simple re recall. Um, but there are some where you have to apply and, you know, make sure you, I know the concept, but I have to be able to read this scenario and use my knowledge of the concept to answer the scenario. So just be aware that there are some questions that are like that where you might think a little bit. So take your time. You should have plenty of time uh, to get it done. And um, yeah. All right. So let's get going. So first up, we'll start off with the, the old stuff, um, unit one. Uh, and the first topic is scarcity. Uh, and just remember that scarcity, first off, is you're always going to see it. I don't know if it's, it, I shouldn't say always, but it is the, the problem. It is the problem of economics. Okay. Uh, it is something that every person, every business, every government faces because there are unlimited wants and needs in this in this world uh but there's only so many resources okay uh and so in order to try and take care of, of people's wants and needs you're always going to face problems you're going to face decisions that you have to make choices that you have to make um and you, you can't keep everybody happy there okay so scarcity uh leads to things like trade-offs where we have to make decisions on well i only have fifty dollars am i going to uh, eat for the week or am i going to buy uh, some clothes or whatever it might be uh, it leads to opportunity choice okay uh, because opportunity cost is the choice of our next best use of our time and money and resources so listening to this podcast and studying and preparing you could be doing something else okay you could be um, probably doing something much more fun than listening to me talk about microeconomics so that's the cost, all right? So you're listening to this, whatever it is you're giving up, whatever it is you could be doing uh, is going to be uh, the opportunity cost of that, all right? Um, <clears throat> now, 
this is a personal thing. I would argue that scarcity is not always a horrible thing. Um, it can, in some cases, be good. Like, there are things that are scarce to me, okay? Uh, I am not wealthy by any means. I live fairly comfortably. But there's things that I want, okay? And because there's things that I want, I continue to work. I continue to, to do extra work and, and whatever I can do. To, to make extra things. So because there's some stuff, you know, some material things that I would like, um, it allow it not allows me, but it, it forces me uh, to work. So, you know, scarcity in that regard, where it's getting people to work and produce and do things like that, it's not always a horrible thing. Now, if food is scarce to someone, drinking water, things like that, now that's bad. That's not a good scarcity. Uh, all right. The next thing is economic systems and economic systems is just uh, basically how a society uh, decides to produce and distribute their goods. OK. Uh, and there are a couple of mark, I mean, excuse, market, a couple of types of economic systems. Uh, you got the market, the command, uh, the mixed economy, uh, the market economy. That is going to be the one that kind of relies on capitalism. <clears throat> And this is the one where uh, individuals and private citizens are going to own uh, all the, the factors of production, all the, the resources uh, and things like that, and, and really get to be the driving force of, of how the economy and how the market is working. Uh, a command economy is typically going to be associated with one that you know is going to come from uh, the socialist slash communist uh, kind of point of view, uh, where the government is going to control uh, the economic activities. It's one where private citizens don't have as much say-so. It's really going to come from uh, the government, and the, a lot of the, the economic choices are going to be made by the government. And then a mixed economy, that's one that uh, kind of incorporates uh, both market and command economies. Uh, it's one where, uh, you know, in a true capitalist in a true market economy, the government will be completely out of all economic decisions. But that doesn't happen uh, in many economies that say they're market or, or capitalist because the government is involved uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, okay, number 1.3, the PPC, the Production Possibilities Curve. And I know this is kind of tough with a podcast because you're not having a visual. Um, but just remember that this is the graph uh, that compares two goods, okay, uh, or services or, or whatever it is we're looking at. And, you know, there's two things, and we'll say good X and good Y. And uh, it's what it's showing is a couple of things, okay. First off, it's showing the trade-off uh, and the opportunity cost associated with those goods because when we're looking at the PPC, we got to remember we have a limited amount of resources and I'm going to use man hours just because that's probably the easiest thing uh, to just kind of visualize and think about. So in our system here, when we're looking at this production possibilities curve, we have 10,000 man hours. All right. So that's what we'll work with. Um, and we, we can't go above that. All right. Those are, that's our resources. And so when we are operating, we can dedicate all 10,000 man hours to good A and make a thousand units of good A. But if we're dedicating all of our resources, all the man hours to good A, that means we're making zero good B. We're not making any of those things, whatever a good B is. 
Alrighty. Uh, so we have to decide, do we want to make all good A and completely ignore good B? Or do we want to make a trade-off and, and, and dedicate some of those man hours to good B? So we decide to go from 10,000 man hours to good A to 6,000. And now we're going to start producing some of good B. All right. This is where opportunity cost comes in because now we move from making all of good A to making only some of good A and then some good B. So the opportunity cost is what we gave up of good A to produce whatever it is we're making of good B with the decision that we made. And we, we show movement along that the line uh, along the, the curve that way. Now, remember that the curve is bowed outward. It's like a concave uh, type thing. Uh, and it in indicates basically what we're just talking about here with the opportunity cost. All right. Um, and what we're doing there. Now, a couple things about it. First off, anywhere on the curve is a good use, solid use of our resources, and it is an efficient use of our resources. If we're on that line, that means that we are efficiently using those 10,000 man hours. Now, if we go off the line and there's a point inside of the curve, so toward the the, where the axes meet, then that means that we are not using our resources. Something has happened. The production possibilities curve can show us that, hey, we have 10,000 people or 10,000 man hours, but we're only using 5,000 of them. And so we're only making this many products. Uh, that means that 5,000 people are not people, but man hours are not being used. That's an inefficient use of our resources. So anything, a point inside the curve, that is jumped off the curve is going to be inefficient. Now, beyond the curve is going to be an unattainable thing because we can't go past the 10,000 man hours. We have that 10,000 man hours, and that is the number. We cannot make these people work more. We can't squeeze 12,000 man hours out of 10,000 man hours. We just don't have it. So there's no way for us to get there. Now, the curve can shift. It can shift outward. If we get more people, if there's technological advances, uh, any number of things can lead to there being more, um, more uh, production, okay? Uh, and that would be a shift. That would not move us to that point that's out there. That would be a shift, whole entire shift of the curve. We can also shift down and so show a decrease in man hours or a decrease in technology or whatever it might be. All right, next up, 1.4 is absolute and comparative advantage. So absolute advantage, we typically use this with a country, but we can also look at it from an individual standpoint as well. Uh, and uh, either way, it is typically looking at two products, two services, two whatever it is we're looking at, two things. And in absolute advantage, that's where the country, the individual, whatever it might be, the business, uh, can, with the same amount of resources, typically produce more or is better at making whatever products we're looking at. Okay. So, for example, country A produces 100 units of, let's say, wheat, uh, than country B. And they can also produce more corn, 50 units of corn, which is more than country B. That means they have the absolute advantage when it comes to producing wheat and to producing corn. Okay. 
because they can take care of themselves. They can make it better than Country B can. They don't really need to trade with Country A. However, that leads us to comparative advantage. Comparative advantage, remember, is where we are going to specialize. We got to decide who gives up the least and lets us decide what we should produce. So what should country A produce and what should country B produce? And then they trade for the other product. So wheat and corn. Should country A give up wheat and let country B produce it? Or should country A give up corn and let country B produce it and then trade for it? Okay. So we're, we're thinking about opportunity cost when it comes to absolute, I mean, a comparative advantage, excuse me. So country A uh, produces 100 units of wheat. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and country B produces their number, whatever that might be. Um, it is going to, to come down to who gives up the least. All right. And I didn't make any numbers for country B, so I, I can't do the, the math, but hopefully it's making sense. We're going to take a look at it and we're going to figure out, okay, country A should give up this because they have the least amount of opportunity cost of just producing this wheat, let's say, and giving up corn. So their opportunity cost would be least for corn. Or it might be, depending upon the numbers you see, like I said, I should have made up some numbers. Should have thought ahead, sorry. Um, or maybe country A gives up the corn because, or excuse me, gives up the, the, the wheat because their opportunity cost is least less over there. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, shoot me an email. 1.5, the cost-benefit analysis, CBA. This is just uh, an approach that people use, businesses use, uh, all kinds of people use this uh, to evaluate the basically the pros and cons, the cost benefits. You know, it is what it says it is uh, of whatever it is, whether it be a project at work, whether it be uh, deciding to go from this job to that job, uh, whatever it might be. You're comparing the total costs of the project, the decision, okay, uh, against its total benefits. And you're going to try and you know, economically justify, basically, whatever it is uh, you are doing. So the first step is going to be, um, you know, what are the costs uh, involved with this? All righty. And then we try and kind of quantify uh, those costs plus the benefits that come with it. Um, and after we have done all that, we sit down and we basically compare and make a decision on what we think is best based on, you know, the quantifiable numbers. And that just means the stuff we can see. So, you know, if I'm trying to, so I made a decision in 2018 to go back to college. I went back and, and got my, my degree and I had to, to weigh the costs. You know, it's cost money to go. It's going to cost time and effort and time away from family and all that kind of stuff. Okay, uh, so I had to weigh those things with the benefits. You know, the benefits is once I get that degree, I get extra pay. I might set myself up for some some new job positions, so on and so forth. So, you know, I had to decide, um, is it worth it for me to go back? So I did some cost benefit analysis uh, in making that decision and ended up deciding that it was. Now, every day that I was in college, <laughs> I regretted it, but <laughs> I did finally get the degree. So I guess that's a good thing. 
All right, 1.6 marginal analysis. Remember, whenever you see marginal, uh, that is just extra. Okay, uh, so marginal analysis is just what's used to analyze um, the the effects, basically, of of small changes, uh, because it is the the extra stuff that we're looking at. All right, now you might see marginal cost. That's just extra cost associated with whatever it is we're doing. Marginal benefit is just the extra benefit that comes with the the cost. All right. Now we do get into something called the law of diminishing marginal returns. And basically this is a principle, this is an idea that eventually you're going to add so much extra that it's not worth it. Now we can look at this from a business standpoint and I made the decision that I'm going to add workers. Let's say I'm doing a lawn care Okay, and I want someone to cut the grass. I want someone to weed. I want someone to spread uh, the pine straw or mulch or whatever it might be. I want someone to spray for the weeds. So I have four people, but I decide, you know what? If I hire four extra people, we can do this doubly fast on the same yards. Uh, and so I do that. And we do. We add time or we take time away from how much how long it took us to, to cut a yard and all that kind of stuff. Well, I didn't decide, hey, I'm going to add some more workers. Well, now I've gone too far and I have people sitting around, but I'm having to pay them. And so it's costing me money and I'm not getting the same returns uh, on my new investment. We could look at this from a personal standpoint. Maybe you are a shoe person and you have bought 50 pairs of shoes. Okay. At some point, uh, you're going to stop getting enjoyment from the, the, the purchase of new shoes. That's all this is getting at. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a break and be right back. All right. Welcome back. So we're picking up with 2.1 and demand. Uh, all right. So first off, just demand to me is, is I don't want to say it's easy because it can get a little tricky with all the shifts in the movement of our graph. But, uh, as far as understanding the law of demand, I think most of us are pretty, pretty good there because we're consumers. We, we can, we recognize this. We go to the store and we make some quick decisions about demand and with, with the price. So the law of demand just says that as price varies, so does our demand. Uh, and pretty simply, as price goes up, we're going to buy less. As price goes down, we're going to buy more. So there's this inverse relationship uh, between price and quantity demanded. Uh, and now we graphically show this <laughs> on the demand curve, uh, and it's going to be downward slope because of that inverse relationship. So um, be sure that when you're doing demand stuff that you label your demand curve as D, alrighty, and you put the, the axes as, as price uh, and quantity. Uh, and yeah, so that is the kind of the law of demand and the demand curve. Now, what are some determinants of demand? What's going to you know, decide a, a shift and a, a movement? So first off, movement on the curve happens because there's a change in price. All right. So we're let's say we're graphing um, tennis shoes. All right. Um, and the price goes from $60 to $100. We can very easily show that on the graph just with our our one demand curve uh, going from point A to point B, 60 to 100. And we just put a little arrow going the direction that we went from 60 to 100. And we've showed it. 
okay? The versus a shift. Now, a shift is where the price of the tennis shoe stayed the same, $60, but something else has happened. And now we have to show a shift and we have to show a whole new curve because there's no way to keep $60 on the same curve and show demand changing. It just, it can't happen. It can't, there's no physical way for us to do that. So we have to draw a new curve and show it increasing or decreasing. So what are some of the determinants? A uh, big one is income. Uh, that is mine and yours. So income uh, going up, going down, whatever it might be. Um, if income goes up, we buy more, therefore demand goes up. If we buy less, I mean, excuse me, if we, uh, income goes down, we buy less. All right. Uh, price of related goods. <laughs> so this one and um, complementary goods are very difficult for people just because you see the price change. And I, I want to graph that. But we got to think, what am I graphing in this scenario? All right. So for related goods, this is where uh, the demand for a good is influenced by changes in the price of a substitute or the complementary good, like I was saying. So on the substitute side, okay, that's goods that can be used in place of one another. So uh, I'm a Coke or Pepsi person. I'll drink either one. It doesn't matter to me. So if I go to the store and I see Coke is $5 and I see Pepsi is $5, I'll buy either one. I don't really care. Okay. Now, if I go to the store and I see that Coke is $2 all of a sudden and Pepsi is still $5, okay, I'm graphing the Pepsi thing here. Pepsi stayed the same, $5. The price of the substitute good, though, Coke went down. So we got to think, okay, what's going to happen to the demand for Pepsi who has stayed at $5? And if Coke is $2 and people will buy either or, more people are going to buy the Coke and less people are going to buy the, the Pepsi. So the demand for Pepsi goes down. So we show that with a shift to the left. Now, if the opposite happened, Coke has gone up to $10 and Pepsi staying at five, then more people are going to buy the Pepsi. The price of Pepsi stayed the same, but we're going to shift to the right. Same thing with complementary goods. Those are goods that are bought together. So we got to once again figure out what are we graphing because the price is going to change for one of those goods. So if I am buying, let's say, uh, a video game console, okay, uh, that's what we're talking about, video game consoles. And, and to make it really work, I know there's other things you can do with a video game console, but video games is the main thing. So if the price of an Xbox, let's just, I don't even know what an Xbox costs anymore, but let's say it's $500. If the price of Xboxes goes from 500 to 100, more people are going to buy those things. Therefore, people are going to buy more games. The price of games is going to stay at 60, but the demand is going to go up because more people have the game system and therefore they need the games to go with it. Now, if the price of Xbox goes from 500 to 3000, then we could assume that the demand for games, even those days at $60, is going to go down. All right. Uh, Tastes and preferences is another thing. Um, we will uh, get tired of some products and just stop buying them. Okay, I like to use movies as an example. Uh, the price of movies stays the same, but eventually it runs its course and it will. people aren't going to go see it anymore. So uh, we get tired of stuff. All right, We also really enjoy stuff. Uh, sometimes the demand will go up 
even though your price stays the same just because we like it. Uh, expectations. If we think the price is going to drop, if we think the price is going to go up in the future, it affects our demand right now. So if I think that the, the price of, um, you know, uh, iPhone is going to go way down in six months, then I'm not going to buy iPhones now at the current price. All right. My demand will go down right now. Uh, and vice versa, if I think it's going to go way up, maybe I go buy my iPhone now. Okay, versus wait until the price goes way up. And then finally, the number of buyers. Uh, if there are more buyers added to a market, then demand is going to go up. It has to because they're going to buy stuff. If number of buyers goes down, then we're going to buy less. And so demand goes down and it shifts to the left. All right. Supply uh, is similar to demand, but it is a little more difficult just because we don't think like suppliers. All right. So the law of supply is same. It's the same thing. Uh, it's that relationship between uh, price and quantity supplied. Um, and in the law of supply, uh, the, as the price of a good increases, the quantity supplied increases and vice versa. As the price decreases, um, the supply decreases. Uh, and so the supply curve is going to slope upward from left to right. And that shows the, the law of supply. Uh, when you graph it out, you can see the law of supply in action. Be sure you label this graph S. Now, same thing, the movements, I'm, uh, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna go back through that, but just a price change will show movement on the curve. So if the supply, supply good goes from 50 cents to $10, we would just show it on the curve. However, we're really more concerned with the shifts because that's what happens more often than not. And that's where the price of a good stays the same, but supply changes for something else. Some external force has caused the supply to change, and we have to show that with a whole new curve. Now, the factors here are input prices. So those are the things that go into making other goods. So if we're making a product and one of the uh, pieces that we need goes way up in price, then we supply less and supply decreases. If the price of that thing goes down, then we supply more. All right. So inputs, uh, and that's just anything. It could be wages to people working. Uh, it can be as simple as oil, new gas prices and things like that. Uh, it could be our internal parts of our product, whatever it might be. The inputs, if the price goes up, we make less and supply less. If price goes down, we make more and we supply more. Uh, technology. So typically advances in technology will increase supply. All right, so we would show with a shift to the right. Uh, and then when that stuff breaks down or has problems or issues, supply typically goes down. Expectations. So uh, as a supplier, if we kind of forecast out into the future and we think that our product is going to sell at a higher price in the future, we're going to cut supply now so we'll have more product to sell when the price goes up. Opposite is true. If we think the price is going to drop in the future, then let's sell as much as we can now. Let's supply a lot more right now. So if you see a problem about expectations, you really got to think, when am I graphing for and what's going to happen to the supply now? The number of sellers is pretty simple uh, as suppliers go up. So, you know, there's two of us uh, in the class. If we added a third person, then that'd be an extra supply. So supply goes up. If one of us leaves, that supply going to go down. Uh, and then government policies, government regulations, things like that. Uh, if the government adds regulations, we're probably going to supply less because that's going to make it more difficult, more expensive to produce whatever it is we're producing, and we'll supply less. Uh, if they relax some of their regulations, then we'll supply more, and that will be a shift to the right. Okay, 
2.3 and 5 both deal with elasticity. Uh, and just remember that elasticity is the responsiveness of the quantity demanded of a good or service to a change in price. So to make it, uh, you know, it's more complicated, but let's say that the price of cell phones goes from $1,000 down to $10. That's going to cause a huge change in demand, right? I mean, people are going to run out there and buy as many cell phones as they possibly can. So that would be elastic. All right. If the price changes and there's not a great big run on phones, so it goes from a thousand down to nine twenty five, people go buy it, but not as many. That's inelastic. And then there's unit elastic where there's absolutely no change. Okay. Uh, The factors that influence. Well, yeah, elastic, inelastic and unitary. Uh, The factors that influence elasticity, the availability of substitute goods. So goods with close substitutes tend to have more elastic demand, meaning, hey, I can buy this or I can buy that. It's the same and and a a price change won't really affect me as much. Okay, or might not affect me. Uh, Is it necessity versus luxury? Uh, And then the proportion of income spent uh, are some of the big ones uh, that affect elasticity. Uh, Let's see. Uh, elasticity, elasticity of supply is kind of the same thing. Same rules apply. It's just the responsiveness of the quantity supplied to a change in something. Uh, let's see. To do the price elasticity of demand, if you want to do the math, um, it's quantities, uh, you know, quantity one versus quantity two. Uh, quantity two minus quantity, quantity one over quantity one plus quantity two. Uh, and then we times it by 100. So basically, uh, the percentage change, uh, new value minus old value over old value times 100. Sorry, I, I got a lot of uh, stuff on my note sheet here. And then uh, price elast- the elasticity thing would be the same thing. Uh, let's see. 2.6 and 7 equilibrium. Uh, equilibrium is where quantity supplied is the same or equal to quantity demanded. So if we're supplying 200 units, there are 200 people that want to buy them. Uh, on the graph, we see that at the intersection of demand and supply. Um, <clears throat> now, we do have things that will change equilibrium uh, as price changes, as supply changes, and things like that. Um, we do have equilibrium changing. Now, this is where I think it's really important to graph out equilibrium changes because to me, and maybe it's just me, but it is much easier to read um, the graph than to try and do it in your mind's eye. Okay. Cause it's going to tell you, Hey, all right. Equilibrium was here. Then demand shifted and price is now here and you can see it versus trying to think about it. So just keep that in mind. Uh, let's see. So this equilibrium would be when there's uh, when quantity demanded does not equal quantity supply and vice versa. You can get into a shortage or surplus. Uh, a shortage is where uh, quantity demanded is greater than quantity supplied. And then a <coughs> surplus is where quantity supplied is greater than quantity demanded. 
Uh, let's see. I think that's all for that. 2.8 government interventions. Uh, the two big ones are the price ceilings and the price floors. Uh, the price ceilings, um, <clears throat> that is the legal maximum price set by the government below the equilibrium price. Okay. Uh, they're typically done to protect consumers. The, the, the big economic example is rent control of apartments. Let's say that apartments with just the natural market is renting for $2,000. The government steps in and says, hey, that's too much. We're going to set a price ceiling of $1,000. All right. Um, that is going to create a situation where more people come out to want to buy or rent an apartment and there's less apartments to rent because the suppliers are going to say, well, you know what? We're going to turn our apartments into something else. So it creates the shortest situation, right, where uh, the demand is greater than the supply. Price floors are going to be the price, uh, the legal minimum price set by the government. And we always use the minimum wage uh, for this. And so let's say um, minimum wage is $8 and um, there are, you know, 100 people that are willing to work for $8. Let's say that the government sets the new minimum wage at $15. Well, now all of a sudden more people want to work. The problem is employers aren't going to hire as many. So we're going to complete a, have a surplus with a price floor. Uh, taxes are also a way to control uh, things uh, either by being making the consumer pay taxes or the supplier pay taxes. That's a way for the government to intervene. Uh, subsidies, those are payments made by the government to producers uh, to encourage production. Um, and then we just talked about the other price controls. All right, I'm going to take another break here and be right back to get into unit three. All right, welcome back. Let's pick up with uh, 3.1, the production function. So first off, the production function describes the relationship between inputs so think like wages, uh, labor, oh, labor is wages, labor and wages, the same thing. Um, any, any kind of capital, like any kind of tools and machinery and things like that, uh, and outputs. So what we have produced, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is we're producing, you know, we can, we, uh, it's represented that way. Uh, mathematically, <clears throat> the general form is going to be Q equals F uh, with Q. K and L in parentheses. So Q is the quantity of output produced. Uh, K is the quantity of capital. So whatever machinery, equipment we have. Uh, L is the labor. And then F is going to be the production function showing how output depends on the inputs. Okay. Um, and go back and take a look at the notes. I th I, this might be, uh, it's tough to, to visualize the formula with me just saying it. Alrighty. Um, we have other things here. We have marginal product of labor and marginal product of, of capital as well. Um, the marginal, remember, is just the extra. And uh, you know, MPL is just change in quantity over change in labor. Um, and then MPK is just change in quantity uh, over change in uh, quantity of capital. So um, I don't think that math is on the test, though. So I don't think you have to worry about that as much. Okay, but that's the production function. Um, basically, we're taking a look at the relationship between quantity produced and the um, the inputs. Uh, 3.2 deals with short-run production costs. So, got a couple of formulas to do here and a couple of things to talk about. Total cost, uh, that is the sum of all costs incurred by a firm in the production process. Um, 
you know, that's going to include our fixed costs and variable costs. So the formula for that is TC total cost equals fixed cost plus variable cost. Uh, fixed costs are just, once again, all those uh, things that do not change with the level of output in the short run. They are just there. So rent, uh, electricity, salaries, insurance, things like that. Variable costs are those things that will change. So the price of raw materials, uh, our utility bill goes up and down, things like that. All right. Marginal cost, uh, that is the additional cost incurred by producing one more unit of output. Uh, and mathematically, that is going to be change in total cost over change in quantity. All right. Um, and that'll give you the, the marginal cost of something. Uh, ATC, average total cost, is the total cost per unit of output produced. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, mathematically, that is uh, average total cost equals total cost over quantity. Right, so uh, that gives you uh, the math for the average total cost. Average fixed cost, uh, that is the fixed cost per unit of output produced. And mathematically, uh, it is FC, so fixed cost over quantity. And then you got average variable cost. Uh, that is the variable cost per unit of output produced. And mathematically, we look at that uh, variable cost over quantity. And we can then use these uh, to make some decisions uh, about our short run decisions that we make, which we'll get into in a little bit and uh, whatnot. 3.3, long run production costs. So total cost in the long run, <clears throat> everything is variable, all right? All inputs, no matter what, capital, labor, all those things uh, are going, excuse me, to be um, variable. And the total cost includes everything incurred by the firm when with all those variable inputs. Alrighty. Uh, long run average, long run average cost. Uh, that's the average total cost when all inputs are variable and the firm is operating at the most cost efficient scale of production. So they're using all their stuff wisely. Uh, it is the lowest possible average cost of producing each unit of output. Uh, economies of scale, those occur when increasing the scale of production leads to a decreasing or at least a decrease in average cost. Uh, it happens because of specialization, uh, using our resources more wisely, things like that. Uh, da, 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 da. I think that's it for the long run. Uh, remember the, the long run curve is going to be that straight up and down because we kind of associate it with full employment uh, because of our resources being used. Uh, it also sometimes can be compared to the PPC, the production possibilities curve. <clears throat> All right, 3.4, uh, the types of profit. So we've got a couple of different ones. Uh, you got accounting profit, the difference between total revenue and our costs. Um, so mathematically, it's uh, TR minus explicit costs or just costs. Uh, economic profit, that's the difference between total revenue and explicit and implicit costs. Uh, so mathematically, that's going to be uh, total revenue minus our explicit plus implicit costs. And then we got normal profit. Uh, that is the minimum level of profit necessary uh, to stay in operation. We have to, at some point, you know, we, we have to make a decision. Well, we're not making any money. What's the bare minimum we have to make to stay afloat? And so that's what normal profit uh, looks at. 3.6 uh, firms in the short run and long run. So short run decisions 
In the short run, short run, excuse me, firms face uh, constraints on adjusting uh, all the factors of production. Uh, they at least one factor is fixed, like capital or maybe wages or permanent or, or whatever it might be. That the wages don't aren't permanent very often. Uh, firms can adjust uh, in the the short run based on a couple different things. They can adjust their production level. Uh, they can vary the quantity uh, of variable inputs like labor, raw materials, uh, and change their level of output that way. So maybe they hire people, fire people, uh, buy different products, uh, raw materials, whatever it might be. Uh, they can respond to changes in demand. Uh, they may adjust their production levels to respond to the market. You know, If we're not buying something, maybe they don't make as much. And this is what happens quite often because consumers have all the power uh, in most markets where we get to decide what's going to happen. All right. Uh, pricing decisions. Firms are going to adjust prices in response to changes in costs or demand conditions. So uh, they have some decisions that they can make in the short run to uh, make adjustments to the factor uh, to to uh, you know, make some decisions. What am I trying to say here? They in the short run, they have to make some decisions based on the different variables that are happen happening, whether they decide to adjust their production levels, whether they adjust their wages, whether they adjust their workers, whatever it might be, they have to make some uh, decisions. Uh, long run, so firms have more flexibility to adjust all factors of production. So remember we said already that all factors are uh, variable and firms can get into, they can leave the market, and they're going to make the following decisions in the long run. So they might adjust their production scale. They can expand or reduce their production uh, by changing the quantities of all inputs. And that's going to be capital and labor. They can do this in the long run. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, they can invest in more technology. They can invest in innovation. Alrighty. They have time to research. They have time to develop this in the long run where they don't have that so much so in the short run already said they can get into and out of the market so they can enter new markets if they want to they can also exit what they're in uh, based on their decisions about profitability and in, in, in the market conditions um, so those are the big ones there uh, and profit maximization in the long run <clears throat> that's their goal okay is to, to maximize uh, economic profits especially in the long run uh, and they adjust their production levels to try and maximize uh, that economic profit. Okay. Uh, the final part of three is 3.7 and perfect competition. So first off, the characteristics of perfect competition. Uh, first one, the big one probably is that you have a large number of small firms. Okay. You don't have the big firms that are going to, to drive things like we see in an oligopoly and, and things like that. So uh, the characteristics are that there's the big one is that there's a large number of sellers in the market and none of them uh, have the, 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 None of them are, are the, the leader, basically, uh, in perfect competition. Uh, the firms produce identical or standardized products, making them perfect substitutes for consumers. So I can go buy yours. You can go buy mine. It's the same thing, basically. Uh, it is free to enter and exit into the market. There are no barriers. There's nothing, nothing like a license I have to get. I don't have to pay for a patent or anything like that. I can just get in. I can get out as much as I want to. Uh, buyers and sellers have... Uh, all the information they need 
uh, about prices, about production, uh, about market conditions. They it, Information is perfect. This is why it's called perfect competition. Uh, price takers, so individual firms have no control over the market price and have to accept what the market says. The market should be the one that dictates the price. Right? The market meaning I'm going and, and I'm looking for prices and I'm buying it at this price. The market does that, not going to be done by uh, one firm kind of doing things and setting the prices. <clears throat> Profit maximization. Firms aim to maximize profits or minimize losses by producing where marginal cost equals market price. And economic efficiency should be uh, using our resources as efficiently and as wisely as possible. Um, in the short run, firms in perfect competition adjust their production levels to maximize profit or minimize losses. Uh, if the market price is above average total cost, remember that ATC we talked about earlier in this unit, uh, firms earn economic profit and may expand production. So if market price is above the average total cost, they're making more money basically. Uh, if the market price is below uh, the average variable cost, then they, they incur losses. Uh, and they continue operating to cover their variable costs. If the market price falls below the average variable cost, then the firm has to make a decision uh, and probably shut down and produce zero output to minimize their losses. So that's in the short run. In the long run, uh, economic profit is going to bring in new firms into the industry. Um, that increases market supply and drives down the prices. Uh, as prices decrease, economic profit diminishes until firms in the industry only earn normal profit, so zero economic profit. So in perfect competition, in the long run, that's kind of the, the standard, that's kind of the goal, is to get that zero economic profit. <clears throat> uh, at long run equilibrium, all firms are going to produce at the minimum point of their ATC curve, resulting in productive efficiency. All right. Uh, critics, critiques, uh, perfect competition is kind of idealized. Uh, meaning how often do we see a market that has the same exact product? Uh, it's, there's not many of them out there. All right. Um, and almost everything is going to offer some kind of product differentiation, <clears throat> which gets us into what we talk about in unit four, which I will do when I return. Okay. All right. Welcome back to our last segment, uh, 4.1 unit four is the most recent so hopefully it's a fairly um recent current for you I, I i'm not sure what i was trying to say there anyways uh the first part is imperfect competition so we're kind of carry on from unit three where we ended with perfect competition and now we get into some of the different uh types of, of, of competition that go along with perfect competition in that they're the different models basically okay so perfect competition at the end of the last segment i said hey you know here's a critique of it and it's that this almost never happens in the real world there's very few places where we have the exact same product and we meet all those requirements uh, that it takes to be in perfect competition all right so unit four gets into some of the other competition models basically so in imperfect competition, uh, there are a few large firms and in this uh, imperfectly competitive market, uh, few firms um, when we compare it to perfect competition, all right, um, and each firm has their own 
kind of decent uh, share of the market. Uh, <coughs> they produce products that are similar, but not identical. And uh, you know, that's going to be the product differentiation piece uh, that we see in some of the other models as well. Uh, you do get brand loyalty. Like there are some that I, I said earlier that I'll drink Coke or Pepsi. It doesn't matter to me. There are some things that I, I will, uh, like I really like, like um, there are some clothes uh, brands. I won't mention them that I you know, just really enjoy. And I, I will, you know, I'll try to stick to them as long as it's not too crazy. Uh, there's very <coughs> uh, little uh, exit and entry barriers to the market. Um, it's pretty easy to get into and out of uh, these things already. Uh, <coughs> the different types and the rest of the, the unit is kind of centered around these different types uh, is monopolistic competition, oligopoly, and monopoly. All right, so I'm going to define them here, but remember, we'll go through uh, each one of these because they each kind of have their own section uh, in the different topics. So monopolistic competition, that is where uh, uh, the market is characterized by many firms selling differentiated products, and each firm has some degree of market power, but competition is still present. The oligopoly. that's the market structure that's dominated by a few large firms, and they all all those, all those few have a pretty significant market power. Okay. Uh, you have this thing called interdependence uh, among the firms where most decisions, it's not like they can, can contact each other and they talk and things like that. But a lot of times if one of the larger firms does something, this interdependence says that the other firms will follow. Monopoly, uh, market structure where there is a single seller dominating the entire market. OK, uh, and so that's going to jump us into the rest of the topics, which covers more in depth the monopolistic competition, the monopoly and the oligopoly. All righty. So 4.2 is all about the monopoly. <laughs> and so I already gave you the definition uh, where there's one firm selling a unique product. Uh, there is really no substitutes that you can get. And so they have really complete control over you and over the market. Alrighty, uh, there are barriers to entry here, and other firms cannot get into uh, the market and and try and you know, cause some competition. The characteristics of a monop monopoly: uh, the single seller. We've already gone over that. The unite unique product uh, that they make. Um, you know, that makes it to where they can't, there's nowhere else to go for this product. Uh, they are a price maker in that they get to set the price for their product. Uh, and it's going to face a downward sloping demand curve uh, with this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> already said there's barriers to entry. It's very different, uh, difficult to get into one of these markets because the monopoly owner, the, the firm that has, has kind of created the situation, uh, they have barriers that they've kind of set up. They have gotten a patent. They have gotten a copyright, uh, exclusive rights, whatever it might be, to be the only one to do whatever it is they're doing. Okay. Uh, graphically, uh, the monopoly's demand curve <coughs> is uh, going to include marginal revenue, so MRC, marginal revenue, and the marginal cost. All right, so you'll see uh, those things uh, on there. Uh, the demand 
curve represents the quantity of the monopolist product that consumers are willing to buy at different prices. So when you're seeing uh, a monopoly and the curve, all right, that's what the, the demand is representing is how much of the product are we as consumers willing to buy. Uh, and it'll slope downward from left to right. And <clears throat> that's the same law of demand that we've already talked about. All right, as price decreases, quantity demand increases and vice versa. The marginal revenue curve, MR, uh, represents the change in total revenue resulting from producing and selling one additional unit of the product. Uh, this curve lies below the demand curve and has twice the slope reflecting the fact that the monopolist must lower the price to sell more product. At some point, monopolists can outprice themselves. And at some point, we have to make a decision. I just can't afford it. I can't go for that. I can't do it. And so, in theory, the monopolists can kind of outprice themselves. The MC, the marginal cost curve, uh, represents the additional cost of producing one more unit of output. And it slopes upward from left to right because of diminishing marginal returns, which we've already talked about. Uh, the profit maximizing output, uh, the mo monopolist maximizes profit where marginal revenue equals marginal cost. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the profit maximization. Uh, price determination, the monopolist sets the price. Typically, it's going to show as MPM by locating the corresponding point on the demand curve above the proxy. Pro I can't talk right now. The profit maximizing quantity. Um, monopolies can have some issues with allocation uh, as they do become inefficient, uh, as they don't produce where marginal cost equals marginal benefit, uh, resulting in a deadweight loss. Governments do try to regulate monopolies. Uh, it is one of the big things that many governments will try and stop is a monopoly from happening because it is unfair to consumers to have no choice. And if there is no choice and there's no um, competition, then they can set the prices artificially high. All right, 4.3 deals with price discrimination. And this occurs when a firm chain charges, excuse me, different prices to different groups of customers for the same good or service based on their willingness to pay. Uh, it allows firms to capture more consumer surplus and increase profits by charging higher prices to different customers. Uh, the different types, you got first, second, and third degree. First degree is perfect price discrimination, and that's when a firm charges each customer the maximum price they're willing to pay for each unit consumed. So if we're trying to go to a ball game <clears throat> and uh, I'm willing to pay $50 and you're willing to pay $20, you know, that would be first degree. Second degree involves charging different prices based on the quantity consumed or purchasing behavior, bulk discounts or quality discounts. So I used to be a coach and would buy shirts. The more shirts we got for my team and the parents and that sort of stuff, uh, the bigger discount we got. The less we bought, the less discount we got. Third degree price discrimination occurs when a firm charges different prices to different market segments based on their price elasticity of demand. Uh, conditions for price discrimination. So market powers firms have to have some degree to market power uh, of market power, excuse me, to engage in price discrimination. Uh, that's probably the big thing. Uh, it also relies on preventing the resale 
of the product from one group of consumers to another. This is why some places will say, hey, this is not for resale. Um, I don't know if you watch sports at all, but a lot of times if you'll pay attention and they'll say, hey, this is the property of, let's say it's a baseball game. This is property of uh, Major League Baseball and you can't redistribute it. Okay, they don't want you to record the game and show it uh, as your own product uh, and, you know, like sell tickets and things like that. Uh, graphically, um, typically it'll show third degree price discrimination uh, and the firm faces two separate demand curves, D1 and D2, representing two distinct market segments with different price elasticities of demand. So I don't think on this test you're going to get into that, uh, but just be aware if you see that D1 and D2, that's probably price discrimination stuff. All right, 4.4 deals with monopolistic competition. Uh, this is the market structure where there are many firms and they are selling differentiated products that are similar but not identical. And uh, in our sessions, I did say, you know, my favorite one is the the laundry detergent just because of their commercials that they like to run <clears throat> where they dirty up shirts and then somehow their product has got it much cleaner than the other person's product. And uh, I just don't know that that's really true, but that's what they show us. Okay. And they want to show how different they are when they really probably do the same thing. Uh, the characteristics here, uh, there are numerous firms, already said that, differentiated products, said that. They're, they're not identical, but they are similar. And uh, free entry and exit into the market. There's no barriers. There's no uh, high startup costs and things like that. Um, firms compete through strategies like advertising, product differentiation, basically non-price competition. The prices are probably going to be similar. So we got to show we're different. We got to show we're better somehow. That's what non-price competition is. And then it does have a, a downward sloping demand curve uh, as each firm faces <coughs> um, or is, is due to the product differentiation, uh, meaning that it can sell more output only by lowering the price. Graphical representation, uh, you're going to see demand curve, marginal revenue curve and marginal cost curve uh, in here or on here. Uh, the demand curve represents the quantity of the firm's product that consumers are willing to buy at different prices. So similar to what we said earlier for the monopoly. Uh, the MR, the marginal revenue, represents the change in total revenue resulting from producing and selling one additional unit of the product. It lies below the demand curve and has twice the slope. And that reflects the fact that the firm must lower the price to sell more output. Marginal cost <clears throat> curve uh, represents the additional cost of producing one more unit of output, and it slopes upward from left to right because of diminishing marginal returns. So some similar stuff, you might see a graph that looks similar uh, with the monopoly and with the monopolistic competition. Uh, da -da -da. In the long run, uh, firms earn zero economic profit. So just like we said earlier, uh, that's a thing. Um, it, it doesn't sound like something that we you know, would want to achieve or, or get to, zero economic profit. But um, in monopolistic competition, uh, that is a thing. Finally, 4.5, the oligopoly and game theory. So the oligopoly is a market structure where a small number of large firms dominate the industry. Uh, and each one of those has a significant market share and their actions uh, can affect the others. OK, uh, I like to use fast food, car industry, things like that uh, as examples. Uh, oligopolist firms often produce differentiated products, so kind of similar, but different. Uh, and. Uh, yeah.
the other thing is game theory, and that is a mathematical framework that analyzes st- st- strategic. I, I, I've been struggling. I've been saying that word uh, all day today uh, and yesterday about something I was teaching, and I've been struggling to, to say it all day. Strategic interactions among rational decision makers. Uh, in oligopoly, firms have to consider how their actions affect not only their own profits, but also the profits of their rivals. So basically, game theory and oligopolies go together because you have all this interconnectedness of the, the firms. It helps predict the likely outcomes of strategic interactions and identify Nash equilibrium, where no firm has an incentive to unilaterally deviate from its chosen strategy. That gets us into the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, That's the classic example of a non-cooperative game where two rational decision makers each have the option to cooperate or defect so they can turn on each other. Uh, Regardless of the other player's choice, each player's best strategy is to defect, leading to a suboptimal outcome for both players. Uh, The prisoner's dilemma illustrates the tension between individual incentives and collective welfare in strategic interactions. Graphically, uh, the graph illustrates a simple <clears throat> oligopoly model where two firms, firm one and two, compete by choosing quantities of output. Uh, each firm's marginal cost, so the MC, represents its cost of producing additional units of output. The market demand, uh, just like the other ones, represents the total quantity demanded by consumers at each price. Nash equilibrium occurs where the reaction functions of both firms intersect, indicating that neither firm has an incentive uh, to deviate from its chosen quantity. At the Nash equilibrium, both firms produce a quantity of output where the marginal costs equal the marginal revenue of the market. All right, a couple other things about it. Uh, Collusion and cartels. So firms and oligopolies uh, may collude to maximize joint profits by coordinating their actions. That is illegal uh, in America, okay? Can't do the price fixing. Uh, There are cartels throughout the world, uh, but they're not supposed to be here. Collusion is difficult to maintain, though, because uh, there's incentives for individual firms to cheat because, hey, if I go outside of our collusion deal, then maybe I can make some extra money. Uh, Oligopolies have significant barriers to entry, such as economies of scale, control over central resources, government regulations, and those sorts of things. (coughs) All right. Lastly is the FRQ. And so I I just told you what to know for FRQ1, and I told you what to know for FRQ2. So just real quick, we've already talked about most of this stuff, so I'm not going to spend much time going back over, but you know, it's just going to be some questions uh, with the potential to graph. And and like I said uh, in the instructions that you or your proctor needs to take a picture of whatever it is you do uh, for the the FRQs and just email it to me when you're done. Uh, I can't grade it until you have you or they have sent me those pictures, all right? But for FRQ1, I told you to know demand. We've already kind of gone over that uh, and and whatnot. Uh, The marginal revenue, the marginal cost, ATC, the average total cost. Uh, A profit maximizing firm, uh, that's where the quantity of output uh, and marginal revenue equals marginal cost. Um, We talked about the short run, where at least one input is fixed, such as capital. Uh, and there's no barriers. So we, we've talked about all the stuff with FRQ1. If you want more information, if you need more, uh, please just shoot me an email and I'll be happy to talk about it. Uh, number two, I said to know marginal utility, diminishing marginal utility, utility along with demand. 
So we've already talked about uh, the marginal part. That's extra. Utility is just the extra satisfaction or the satisfaction that you get. So marginal utility is just the additional satisfaction uh, that a consumer gets from consuming one more unit of a good or service. And then I talked about diminishing marginal returns, you know, like where I was hiring uh, the four extra lawn care workers, and then I hired an extra four, and eventually I stopped getting a return. Same thing happens to us because I said the shoe thing where, hey, you buy so many shoes, eventually you're going to stop getting utility satisfaction from those shoes. So that's what diminishing marginal utility is. Uh, the relationship with the demand, um, it's closely related to the law of demand um, because as the price of a good decreases, the quantity demanded increases with everything else constant. Um, and so as the price of a good decreases, consumers can afford to purchase more units, increasing their total utility. However, once again, like I said with the shoes, eventually you're going to run out and say, you know what, I've, I've bought so many shoes at this price, I'm, I'm really not enjoying it anymore. And um, so that is that. All right. Best of luck on this midterm. Best of luck on all your other midterms. I hope you do really well. Let me know if you have any questions or concerns going into this midterm, and I'll be happy to try and answer them and respond to them uh, as fast as I can. But uh, best of luck. Have a great weekend, a great week, whatever it is you're, you've got going on when you're listening to this, and I'll see you when I see you. Take care. Bye-bye.